went to a museum, Red Brother. Welcome to another edition of BartCast, a podcast series curated by Bartimaeus Cooperative Ministries. Learn more at bcm-net.org. Christina Passaz, a uh, Polish-American, writes, Crazy Horse, it says in my American heritage, was killed while resisting arrest. Lies can make you crazy faster than anything else. This is not the first lie I have discovered in the dictionary, but I wish it was the last. What would the last lie look like? How would it feel? Would we miss lies if we didn't have them? Living with lies is a shattering experience. The dictionary tells us that the root for craze is krasa, Old Norse, meaning to shatter. This is not a lie. You will likely recognize this famous oration attributed to Chief Sealt, a revered leader of the Duwamish and Suquamish tribes in Puget Sound. They were allegedly spoken to the governor of the Washington Territory in the mid-1950s. Thank you, yes. Mid-1850s at the site of present-day Seattle. Every part of this country is sacred to my people. Every hillside, every valley, every plain and grove has been hallowed by some fond memory or some sad experience of my tribe. Their deep fastness at eventide grows shadowy in the presence of dusky spirits. And when the last red person shall have perished from the earth and their memory among the whites will have become a myth, these shores will swarm with the invisible dead of my tribe. And when your children's children shall think themselves alone in the field, the store, the shop, upon the highway or in the silence of the woods, they will not be alone. At night, when the streets of your cities and villages are silent and you think them deserted, they throng with the returning hosts that once filled and still love this beautiful land. White folks, settlers, will never be alone. How many people have encountered this somewhere along the way? Yeah, quite a few. Not only do these lines speak of the land as haunted, this now renowned testimony has also haunted settler consciousness ever since, which is why so many of you have seen it before. These words, however, were written by Henry A. Smith in an 1887 newspaper article. Historians now believe they weren't probably Seals, at least not all of them, but rather the interpolation or even perhaps partial invention of Smith three decades after Seath's famous oration. But if that is the case, then isn't isn't it a fact that they are just as revelatory? Because this discourse then would directly reveal a haunted settler consciousness being projected upon a noble Indian. And this is being published at a time, 1887, 
a fraught historical moment just prior to the last Indian War and the so-called closing of the American frontier, to use Frederick Jackson Turner's imperialist phrase. Whatever the provenance of the Seattle quote, it speaks to our condition, as Quakers would say. The fact is, our settler histories, places, and psyches are haunted. Sociologist Avery Gordon, <clears throat> in her important book, Ghostly Matters, asserts that haunting is a constituent element of modern social life through which repressed or unresolved social violence makes itself known in everyday life, especially when these things are supposedly over and done with. Slavery, for instance. Or when their oppressive nature is continually denied. Let's sit with that for a minute. Unangash scholar Eve Tuck adds pointedly, <clears throat> social life, settler colonialism, that is the management of those who have been made killable, and haunting are inextricably bound. Each ensures that there are always more ghosts to return. I don't know if you uh, <clears throat> are aware, but uh, there's a new social psychological field called hauntology, a term coined by Jacques Derrida 25 years ago, and it's animated significant literature by indigenous and black scholars seeking to understand how past trauma lingers in both people and places, such that perpetrators and their descendants are haunted by the violence sponsored by the social project from which we benefited. One anthropologist notes that a central element of haunting is secrecy, where the secret may be shameful, not yet speakable, or deceitful, and that certainly speaks to settler shame culture. Haunting, Avery Gordon asserts, is neither a pre-modern superstition nor an individual psychosis, right? The ancient and the modern way of looking at these things, typically. It's neither of those things, and it certainly isn't captured by Hollywood horror movies. So it doesn't seem too much of a stretch to suggest that this social phenomenon might be analogous to what the healer Jesus of Nazareth diagnosed <clears throat> and engaged as unclean spirits. The Gospels portrayed Rabbi Jesus as unmasking such spirits, spirits that were both political, as in, for example, the case of the Legion in Mark chapter 5, right, the Legion which represents the occupying powers who lock down a subject among the dead, and spirits who are personal, as in the case of a silencing spirit that renders a young boy unable to speak or hear in Mark chapter 9. Yesterday's blanket exercise was a painful overview of every kind of assault on indigenous land and peoples <clears throat> over the course of centuries of settler colonial history right up to the present. And our interlocutors yesterday afternoon reminded us that it was the sponsors and agents of that violence 
who were the most dehumanized by it. Which means that we in settler society are beset by a plague of hauntings, the symptoms of a profound dis-ease which stunts our ability to be fully human. This brings to mind a pretty strange parable of Jesus that we find in Luke 11, which I think speaks poignantly to the complex healing required by the journey of decolonization. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, <clears throat> it wanders through the waterless regions looking for a resting place. Not finding any, it says, I'll return to the house from which I came. When it comes, it finds it swept and put in order. And then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and live there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. This is pretty weird stuff to modern ears, but not, I suspect, for more traditional cultures. Obviously, there's a kind of inversion here of the archetypal, um, sorry, archetypal Jewish number seven as symbol of liberation, which also resonates in other religious and mystical traditions, seven chakras, seven veils, the seven-story mountain of Merton, and so on. I think this story is acknowledging the profound truth that underneath every symptom are deeper issues, beyond every mountain of injustice are seven more. It strikes me as a revealing diagnosis of the psychosocial condition of those of us who have inherited the legacy of a half millennium of colonization. It is the lies that make us crazy. So decolonization, it turns out, is in an inward as well as an outward journey. No sooner have we descendants of perpetrators reckoned with one layer of haunting than seven more are revealed. It's like peeling the proverbial onion and involves a lot of tears. The pathology of colonization is that deep. Our settler psyches and spirits are possessed sevenfold. Our communities and culture and public life are occupied seven layers deep which is why the work we're engaged in this week seems so confusing or daunting to us and why we avoid it at every turn. Well, here's the good news for confused and contradiction-ridden Christians. The Gospels attest to the vocation of Jesus of Nazareth that central to his vocation was the work of healing. But he wasn't a socializing physician, that is, somebody who patches people up so they can go back and carry on with the status quo. No, he understood that the real disease went deeper, a radical doctor who sought out the roots of the dis-ease. <clears throat> this is most poignantly symbolized in his efforts to restore vision to those who don't see clearly. Now, each year we remind BKA participants that our namesake Bartimaeus comes from the story of a marginalized person who just wants to see and follow the way. <clears throat> but this beloved trope has a longer arc in Mark's gospel. Several chapters earlier, there's a similar episode of healing. Uh, <clears throat> understand that for Mark, blindness 
symbolizes the deeper crisis of what we're calling agnosia or willful unknowing. Um, Page 14 is where these texts are, by the way. This pair of healings neatly frames a cycle of teaching that I like to call the discipleship catechism in the middle section of the gospel. The intervening narrative between these two stories of blind men uh, instructs us how to journey from partial sight, the incident at Bethsaida on the left, and seeing as discipleship the story of Bartimaeus. Symbolics abound in the first narrative. The first half of Mark's whole story closes with Jesus' poignant challenge to his followers, do you get it yet? Do you understand yet? This query about whether we truly get Jesus' work of liberation enough to embrace it would appear to be unresolved, judging by most churches. Immediately on the heels of this check-in comes the first of Mark's twinned healings. What's interesting about it is that it's the only time in the whole gospel story that a cure takes Jesus two tries. I see people, says the man from Bethsaida, after Jesus touches him once, but they look like trees. Isn't that pretty much how it is for most of us settlers? We're seeing, but only partially. Our vision is full of distortion. We're still missing things or misperceiving them outwardly and inwardly. So if Bartimaeus represents the archetype of the one who gives up everything just to see clearly, he is, after all, the only true disciple in Mark's story. The incident at Bethsaida better describes our halting efforts. We simply have a lot more work to do. We need a lot more help. And yet, too often we settle for partial vision. Jesus of Nazareth offered strong medicine to treat the external oppression and internal psychosis of empire. It's why his healings were always disruptive of the status quo and earned him the ire of the authorities. He was surrounded by regular folks who didn't understand they weren't healthy and by people in power who insisted that there were no fatal flaws in their social, political, religious system, especially the Herodian elite and their plans to, if I might borrow a recent political phrasing, make Israel great again. To their criticisms, Jesus famously retorted, well, only those who realize they are sick will seek out a physician. This truism cuts to the heart of why and how we are doing this work this week on settler colonialism. We keep imagining that it's somebody else's problem that maybe we can help fix. We think it's somebody else's marginalization that maybe we can help rectify. But as Wendell Berry wrote 50 years ago, it is our hidden wound. It is our dis-ease, if we have eyes to see it. And the cure, according to Jesus' powerful medicine, is to join in the struggle to turn our pathological and personal and political history around, because it's killing all of us. This, of course, is the meaning of the Greek term metanoia, or repentance. 
to radically change directions. I get it, I understand. That word has become utterly domesticated in privatized and spiritualized Christian circles today. Let's face it, powerful medicine can always be mishandled, right, Marcia Dunnigan? So as to become toxic, that which is meant to heal ends up killing, like the opioid crisis today, or so much of the missionary legacy. To return to our gospel parable, too often in church history, one unclean spirit was shown the door while seven more still rested comfortably in the pews. Part of today's cohort questions have to do with what we're calling moves to innocence, and we invite you to struggle hard with these difficult queries because they represent classic ways in which we settlers try to convince ourselves that we aren't diseased, that the problem is out there. The problem with myths of innocence and protestations that we're okay, we're okay, is that if we actually think we're okay, we won't seek healing. And certainly not radical healing. Consequently, despite all our efforts to help other folk, nothing changes. Jonathan Cordero is going to probe some of these moves to innocence um, more in his workshop later this afternoon. But to borrow from 12-step language, it is only until and unless we recognize the lethality of our disease and turn to a power greater than our own, the gospel as strong medicine, that we can turn our individual and communal lives around in the service of wholeness and justice and, colonization, and decolonization and heal both our haunted political bodies and our haunted body politic. Our faith communities have the opportunity on this end of this long history to become places where we nurture the courage to go deep, to see clearly, and to deepen our personal and political disciplines of peeling the settler un colonial onion seven layers down. Part of this, as our interlocutors insist this week, will involve us learning to feel and share our pain about our entanglement in the colonizing project, past and present. As Jonathan said yesterday, the emotional labor of indigenous people having to share their pain so we can get it, it's too costly. In the long run, our work cannot be sustained on other people's pain or other people's strength. This is our onion to peel. The fire must be in our bones. And we believe that we can do this, fueled by the prophetic hope intoned by Malachi of old, that a day is coming when Creator will burn the works of injustice to their roots until the sun of righteousness rises with healing in its wings. You have been listening to the BartCast, produced by Bartimaeus Cooperative Ministries. To find our resources or to donate to support the BartCast, please go to chedmyers.org. Thank you for listening. Oh.